Okay. Many of us, many, likely know somebody that we would call uh, that person someone who was unlikely to become a Christian. We probably all have that person, right, where we go, man, there's no way that guy would become a Christian. There's no way. Or that girl, there's, I mean, there's just, there's no way they would ever become a Christian, right? Um, they're hard-hearted, they're stubborn, uh, in unbelief, they don't care about Christianity. Maybe they're even, like, antagonistic, like, not even just, like, I don't like it, but, it's bad, like, just anti, like, like, like atheistic, angry, right? Maybe that. Uh, and maybe you know examples of people who are like that. I have a few. Uh, John Newton, right? He was a former slave trader, right? He was a drunkard and a slave trader, uh, literally owned people, right, as a slave trader. He got converted and became a pastor. Uh, Martin Luther just thought, you know what? I'm good enough. I'm a good monk. I don't worry about it. I know who I am. Nothing to worry about. Uh, I don't need this gospel. I'm fine. Uh, he got converted. Uh, John Bunyan was just a, just a regular. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Just a, I mean, he just called himself. I'm just a regular. I mean, he just an, an immoral person. He just knew. I'm, yeah, I'm really sinful. I know I am, and I just don't really care. Uh, he became a believer as well, obviously. And maybe you know C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Mere Christianity. He was uh, just a regular atheist. I mean, he just knew. After his mom died, he thought, no, there's no way this God is good. There's just no way. And he would be converted years after the, after the fact. And we would consider them, uh, I probably do, and you probably do, uh, unlikely converts, right? Like, there's no way. They'd become, like, why would they become a Christian? There's just no way. It's unlikely, right? Um, are you aware, however, of how the Bible speaks of your conversion? That we are all, as if you're a Christian, we are all of an unlikely nature to be converted. That the likelihood of your conversion is just as unlikely as that person's. It's actually very shocking that you're converted and they aren't. It's actually very strange, isn't it? How about your Christian life? Do you consider that it's very unlikely that you would be maybe where you are now? Or how do I grow in the, like, look where I am now. It's very unlikely that I would know these things as a Christian, right? There's this growth that I have. Or maybe ask it this way. Who do you owe your Christian walk to? Uh, Who's done all the work? Who's done all the, the growing in your life? Who does everything? Uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks in chapter 15, uh, Paul's just given us just the simple, uh, this is the gospel, right? Verses uh, 1 through 2, he's saying you were saved by it, you stand in it, and that's what you need for the rest of your life, right? And then verses 3 through 4, he just defines the gospel. It's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right, according to the scriptures. And then this whole section from chapter, I'm sorry, from verse 3 all the way to verse 11, Paul is just saying, Here's all the people he appeared to. This is, this is how we know he's actually alive, right? And we've kind of chunked it up. But today, we're going to look at Paul, who is a test case of probably the most unlikely convert, who's actually just like you. We are the most unlikely converts. And I think from this, our response is going to be very simple. We should respond with humility. There's just no other response that makes any sense. I want to read you a hymn, I won't sing it to you, uh, by a man named Isaac Watts. Uh, he has a lot, he's wrote a ton of hymns, including Joy to the World, uh, in the 18th century. And this is, what, this is what the hymn says, it's called, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Not like, ah, uh, awful, but like, full of awe, right? This is what it says. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. So where we are gathered, right? With all our hearts and all our songs, join to admire the feast 
each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Do you hear the hymn of that? Lord, how come I'm here? Why am I a believer? Why me? This is the point. So my purpose in preaching today is that you would just simply see God's grace in your past life, in your Christian life, and towards other Christians around you, so you respond with humility. Uh, that's it. Humility is something we all need to be, have born in us, and Paul's going to give us three angles to see that. So, uh, First, uh, grace creates humility as a sinner. So this is your BC life, your before Christ life, right? And Paul's going to show us two things. Look at verse, starting in verse 8. First thing is the greatness of who Jesus is. So look at verse 8. Last of all, um, as to one untimely board, he appeared to me. So think about who Paul has been talking about this whole time, right? The resurrected son of God, the, the one who is with the father, literally God, the son, right? Jesus Christ, uh, the greatness of Christ, veiled in flesh, right? He's fully God, fully man. I mean, perfect. He's God, right? The scriptures all talk about him. The apostles preached him. The prophets preached who he was, right? He's, the Bible says that all of history from the first day of creation to the last day, it's all about one person. It's about Jesus, right? Uh, Colossians 1.16 says that for in him or by him, all things were created in him and for him. So everything that exists is for Christ, by Christ, because of Christ, right? I mean, everything. So the Christ that Paul's talking about is not just a, yeah, he's all right. This is a big Jesus, right? Big Christ. Cosmic proportions, right? The one who suffered for sinners, who died, who was buried, who, who rose on the third day alive, right? Defeating sin and death and Satan. To put it simply, Jesus is incomparably great, isn't he? I mean, there is none like him. That's what holy means. There's none like him, right? Infinitely great and praiseworthy and precious. So consider what Paul is saying, that Christ, that one, he appeared, he appeared to me. That Christ appeared, just me. I'm, I'm, look, look who I am. Look at Christ, right? Why Paul? What made Paul so unique and special? That's, that's what Paul is thinking, right? Why, why am I worthy to meet this Christ? I'm me. Look at him, right? Paul just can't get over this. He appeared to me. I don't want us to get over it either. And he says, as one untimely born, maybe your translation says um, untimely born or abnormally or out of due time. Uh, the word's kind of strange. It, we don't really, it, it's a very odd word. And we'll be, the best way to understand it is um, it's an unexpected nature. Like, oh, like I'm just here. Like I should, I don't really deserve to be here, but now I'm here, right? Um, why was he born to see Christ rather than maybe David? Why wasn't Paul born during our time? That's what Paul's saying. Why was I born now to see Christ and not in 2023? Or why wasn't Paul born in Moses' day? We never like why, Paul's saying, why was I born then, right? So the question is, do you consider yourself knowing Christ to be abnormal? Why do I know him? I know that Christ, right? I think we all have seen those couples we see where uh, the married couple and um, you go, wow, she's just beautiful. Look at that guy. Why are they together? Don't you think that? 
Well, I mean, I I look at Kelly all the time. I go, you know, you married an idiot, right? I mean, I just don't. But you just think, wow, weird, right? I mean, look at Christ, and you look at Paul, and you go, him, really? You go for that one? All the people, you want that one? In Revelation chapter 1, we get a really big vision of who Christ is, a really big sight. In verses 12 through 16, this is who Jesus, this is what he looks like. All right, let me read it to you. Revelation 1, verses 12 through 16 said this. Then I, I, John, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like a roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John says, when he saw him, I fell down as though dead. That's Christ, right? Big. When that's the one the angels shut their eyes at, right? They can't look at him. They just close their eyes and they proclaim who he is. So they can't see him. They just shout who he is, right? That Christ came to Paul. Friends, there's, there's, none, of, there's none like Jesus, right? Can we agree on that? If we can't agree on a lot of things, let's agree on that. There's none like him. Just simply none like him. That's the Christ Paul's talking about. So the greatness of Christ is secondly, the second thing is the greatness of our sin. Look at verse 9. For, or because, for I am the least of the, of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul looks back over, again, his B.C. days when he was uh, Saul of Tarsus, right? Saul, that's, we, he changed his name as a way just to show us change in person, right? But he was formerly Saul of Tarsus, right? So uh, what's an apostle? Well, just, just quick review. It means you have to have seen and actually met Jesus in person, right? It's not, um, yeah, we've heard he exists, but you have, to, you have to meet the resurrected Jesus alive, right? Uh, if you look at just the book of Acts in chapter 1, after Judas is dead, they go, who should we appoint? And they literally say, someone who's been with us the whole time, who's met Jesus alive. That's what they say in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And this happened to Saul, right, or Paul. If you look at just Acts chapter 9, Verses 1 through 19, that's Paul's conversion, right, where he actually meets Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I'm an apostle. I've met him. I know who he is, right? So if you know much about Paul's biography, you know that Paul's life is really nothing but sin and shame, right? Religiosity and great evil. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. So Acts chapter 7 is about one man dying. Do you know who that is? Stephen, right? He's the first martyr, right? He, he preaches a really long sermon, a whole chapter, so you're welcome. Uh, preaches a whole chapter of a sermon, and after he preaches, they, the people who stone him give their coats to, like, hey, Saul, can you watch our coats? Yeah, sure, we'd love to, right? That's, that's Saul. Then Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and 3, there's, it says Paul, Saul, ravaged the church. I mean, he just, yep, jail, Christians, jail, burn. I mean, he's just, he's a madman, right? Then Acts chapter 9, when he meets Christ. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that not only was he against the church, but he was a Pharisee. He was blameless. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. If anybody knew more Bible than we did, it was Saul. There's just no competition. He, he memorized, all, all Jews had to memorize the first five books of the, the, the Old Testament in their youth. And he was a Pharisee, so he was brilliant. I mean, just brilliant man. 
In other words, not only was Paul, or Saul rather, fully sent, set against Christ and the gospel because he wanted to kill it, he was also fully convinced, I don't even need it, right? I know, I know the whole Bible, I'm fine. I don't need your Jesus. I know everything about the Bible. And I hate him. Why would I want him? Right? So if anybody was fully self-convinced, can we say that it was Saul? I think so. And then he looks at all the other apostles and says, man, I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm the last. I'm the least, right? Friends, help be with me here and wrap your head around this. Paul is stunned by this. I want, I want to help you maybe understand why this is so stunning. Do uh, you ever wonder why celebrities, when they visit like Kansas City or something, why they don't come knock on our doors for lunch? Do you wonder that? Like, I know Mahomes is kind of busy. Just down the road. Just knock on the door. I'd love to get lunch. I'll buy you a taco. Whatever you want. I'll buy whatever you want, right? Why don't they come to my door? You guys ever think that? It's not fair, right? Instead, they go to their friend's stores. Would you, would you think it's strange, better yet, if a famous wealthy person went to a foreign country, a foreign land, and they met with someone that hated them? Would you think that'd be strange? Like, what if a celebrity said, you know, I'm going to go grab lunch today with the Unabomber. He's still alive. We should meet him. Let's get lunch together. The Bible this is what Jesus met Saul. This is, this is Saul. He's not, oh, he's a pretty good guy. He's an enemy, right? He's not a good person. He's awful. Paul's just, he knows he's wretched. He's an enemy, right? And rather, Jesus sought him because he loved him. He chose Paul because he loved him. Paul's sin did not deter him, right? Before he was born, Jesus came for Paul. Now, we, we can get easily uncomfortable about this idea, that, and Don Raven brought this warning just a little bit in Sunday school, that God has a way where the Bible's pretty clear, before we are born, God chooses who's converted. And you just can't get around it. We can disagree on how that happens. That's fine. Before they've done anything good or bad, the Bible says. But let me give you something that Charles Spurgeon said that should warm your heart. It's a good thing God chose me before I was born because he surely would not have chosen me afterwards. That's what Paul is saying. Oh, me? I mean, I'm an enemy of the cross. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, one of my favorite verses of all, Paul says that it pleased God. God got pleasure, like excitement, to reveal his son to me. So when God saved Paul, he wasn't like, oh, good, there's Paul. Better make him a Christian. God got excited to say, I mean, before the foundations, like, I'm going to save that one, right? So let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. Do you see your own heart this way? We know our hearts. We know the skeletons that's, that are in our closet, so to speak. We know the sins of our past that shame us. The hidden evils that nobody knows about, we know them. And then we look at ourselves and we go, who among us here thinks themselves worthy to become a Christian? May we never think that. Let me encourage you that we must, I think this is biblically dead on, we must be more bothered by our own sins than by everybody else's. I am a wandering sheep. I know for a fact that I am. <laughs> I'm a sinful sheep. So the greatness of my sin should drive me to the dust. 
not, man, look at that guy, but man, look at me, right? There's nothing in me that drew Jesus' love. There's nothing to him go, oh, now he's ready. None of that. We would have been passed over like everybody else. Do you understand that? You know how shocking that is? I know people who are not Christians, who hear the gospel and don't care, who don't want to read the gospel track, don't want to read a book, have less access to the gospel, and here I am, a believer, and it's not because I figured it out first. The Bible says that I was dead in my sins, just like them. Or perhaps even now, consider the sins of this week that you've committed. Guys, it's barely February. Have you sinned as much as I have? And come on. Thought, word, deed. Grace is a humbling reality, isn't it? Jesus then severs the root of pride, right? I go, man, look at me. Jesus goes, yeah, I know. I know what I see, right? If, if it's by grace alone, I have nothing to boast about. So Jesus severs pride by showing me, me. Okay, look how bad you are. <laughs> look. Even now, friends, we must feel the depths of our depravity. It's actually good that God shows you your sin. Do you know that? It's actually a gift for you. Isn't it just like our Lord to be so infinitely wise that he can show you your sin and actually grow you in grace? Isn't that amazing? That God can, he's able to put to you sins in us that he hates to produce in us that which he loves, namely humility. Isn't that amazing? He can do that. He wields your sin that you commit to spurn on your humility and your holiness. Let this thought prod you a little further. Now, what I tend to think, and this is also very prideful, but I think you get what I'm trying to say when I say this. I probably wouldn't be like Saul. Can we agree on that? More than likely, the normal unbelievers not going out to churches and burn them down, right? You guys ever know people like that? Probably not. You probably know, you probably know unbelievers who march into doors and arrest Christians, right? Probably not happening. Instead, God saved you from something I think more frightening, which is an average moral American life, meaning that you um, grow up in a pretty average home, uh, you get married, you have children, work a pretty good job, have a pretty nice family, retire at a good age, a lot of grandkids, woo, go on vacation, have a lot of fun, and then die in unbelief. That's a tragedy. And God saved me from that. Last of all, he appeared to me. So had God not revealed his son to me, I never would have found him. Do you believe that? This is Paul's first angle. He's showing you humility for, look what you used to be. Look at like, who you are now. Look how you used to be in your sin. Secondly, grace creates humility as a Christian. Again, two things here. First, grace makes a difference. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, so we love, we, love the, we love these words, don't we? But, oh, it's a good sentence now, right? But by the grace of God. So what changed Paul? Was it his willingness, his thoughtfulness, his wisdom? Doesn't seem to be, does it? The grace of God appearing of Christ was not Paul's idea. It was God's, right? Paul knows that he owes all to grace. He wasn't looking, right? He was actually opposing, right? It's only sovereign grace. And Paul explains the mystery of this 
uh, to us in Romans chapter 11. Very briefly, I'm going to read you a, a verse here. This is what Paul says concerning the other Jews. So Paul was a Jew, and he knows other Jews like him or not like him. They're not believers. That's what he says. Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul is saying if, if, it, was, if it wasn't of God's grace, grace wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be salvation without God doing it, right? Have you thought about Paul's ministry in the book of Acts? So when Paul gets converted, what's the first place that he goes to? Do you remember? Who does he go to? He goes to Jews, right? Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Chapter 13, verse 5, chapter 14, verse 1. I mean, just keep, it eventually goes to the Gentile. But first, Paul goes to the Jews. And Paul goes to his own former people, right? People he knows, right? People he probably has grown up with for a long time, right? And he preaches to them from the scriptures about who Christ is. Now, let me ask you a question. This is a conjecture, but I think we can agree on this. While Paul was preaching to unbelieving Jews that he was just one of those, I mean, just not long ago, do you think he had any pride in his heart? You guys are so slow to understand. Do you think he preached that way? I don't think that he did. I think he knows. <laughs> I didn't do anything. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus just blew me up, right? He just loved Christ. He knows that apart from God's grace, he would be just like them. I'd be sitting in that synagogue, still rejecting the Messiah, just like them, if it weren't for grace, right? Grace alone makes the difference between our just condemnation or God's judgment and is passing over us versus our state of faith and love for Christ. So the Bible says because of Adam's sin, we're all born sinful by nature and by nurture. We, we're born sinful and we, and we like to sin, right? No one makes you ever sin. You want to, right? We're born guilty and sinful. 2 Timothy chapter 1 says that grace has been, verse 10, grace has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So how does a sinner, friends, here's the million-dollar question that I think you need to be able to answer as a believer. How does a sinner drop his sins in repentance? He loves sin. How does that happen? What do we just read? Through the appearing of Christ in the gospel, right? They have to see Christ, right? God has to reveal Christ to them through the gospel, through the preached gospel, right? Thomas Brooks said it this way, that saving grace makes a man as willing to leave his lusts as a slave is willing to leave his noose, or a prisoner his dungeon, or a thief his bolts, or a beggar his rags. So do you see then that grace actually makes us willing Right? Isn't that good? It's not just outside of us. Grace makes you willing. It actually causes what you need to do, right? And then when you see yourself as you are, Jesus is then irresistible, isn't he? I want him, right? It's a work of grace. So the good news of the gospel, in chapter 15, verse 3 through 4, Jesus died for sinners, buried, and rose. That's the good news. That he offers righteousness to all who would believe. So just a simple question is, have you by faith and by faith alone looked to Christ for your rescue? That's the question, right? Can you say in truth, friends, 
Can you say that when you see unbelievers and non-Christians around you, that you interact with, that you work with, maybe you live really close by to, can you, can you look at them and say, but for the grace of God, there go I. Can you say that? Brothers, I hope that you can. That's true grace in the heart, isn't it? And for God's grace, I'd be just like them, right? Do you see how grace then changes your heart towards unbelievers? You don't ever, you shouldn't be shocked when people sin, right? How could you do that? Well, they're doing what they're supposed to do. That's what they're doing, right? Our heart should be tender towards unbelievers, right? should be surprising. Second thing, grace makes, a, makes, makes the difference. Look at verse 10 again. So this is, uh, I'll be honest, there's some text when I'm going through my sermon, I go, man, this is a good verse, I guess I'm but. Verse 10, I, I can't get over it. And I, I hope you see why. This, it just, this verse just rocks me. It's just, I can't get over this verse. Okay? So his grace appeared, right? I'm, I am what I am. I'm a believer, right? Look at the second half of verse 10. On the con- it was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Back up, Paul. You, you guys ever read the Bible and go, what did I just read? Read that again. I worked harder than any of them. But what does Paul say? Though it wasn't I. Okay? Doesn't make any sense, Paul. Do you see what he's saying? His current life as a believer is unimaginable. So just think of who Paul was, the greatest Christian to ever live, Apostle Paul. I think we can agree on that. His preaching, his teaching, his church planning, his pastoring, his discipling, his traveling, his determination, his unrelenting devotion. I mean, he suffered like a crazy, just again, read the book of Acts. I mean, he is invincible. I mean, he's just, he's, he's a madman. He, you can't stop Paul. You throw him in jail, he converts all your guards. You say, we'll kill you. Good, die his gain. What do we do with this guy? We just can't stop the man, right? He's amazing. There won't ever be another apostle Paul. He, he says this, he worked how hard? Harder than any of them. I am the hardest working Christian I know. I mean, this is, sounds pretty prideful, Paul. He's getting there, don't worry. His travels, his torture, his teachings, right? Again, read Acts. It's just amazing. So it's very simple. Who is responsible for you to grow in the Christian life? Who must do the work? It's an easy question. Me, right? You have to read and pray and devote hard, right? Paul's making it very clear. It's hard. How do you get better at hitting a baseball? You got to go swing the bat, Get a tee, hit the ball, or you can just talk about it, do it, right? Obviously. But I want you to see what Paul just said after that section. That's all true. Verse 10, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He worked harder. I made all the effort. I did everything. Me, me, me. But it actually wasn't even me doing anything. Isn't that just, do you think like that? The Bible makes you think, I don't even know if I've read the Bible right my whole life. Just stunning verse, isn't it? Don't get, I can't get over this text. This disarms every Christian in the room, doesn't it? Look how far I've come. How far you've come? Really? Friend, let this verse just attack you. It stings, doesn't it? There's this old fable about a woodpecker. <laughs> That's pretty silly. Uh, he was uh, woodpecking. You know, as they do, obviously, Kale, thank you for that lesson, uh, on a tree. And uh, there's a lightning storm and lightning struck, and it hit the woodpecker. 
went through him and split the tree in half. And he flies away going, look what I just did, right? <laughs> Great job, right? Look what you just did. Isn't that what Paul's just saying? I did all the work. And God's like, what are you talking about? You didn't do anything. I did everything. Oh, I was pecking the tree. I know what you were doing. I did the work, right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Listen to this. This is, this is a parallel verse. Okay, if you want a good verse to parallel with it, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I'll read, I'll emphasize what Paul is saying. Work out your salvation. Who needs to work out their salvation? You or me? You, right? Work it out. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you work, but it is God who works. Okay, I think I'm getting there, Paul. So many of us have grown up in Christian homes. Praise God. What a good gift of Christian parents. Can I just tell you that? It's a gift. Unfair. Who, and we've been rightly taught, probably, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Do you guys know that verse? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We love That's a good text, friends. Know that one, okay? So we know that the, the good results in the end go to who? To God, right? Well, Paul's taking it even one step further now, isn't he? Not just, not just the credit. Paul's saying even the working, even the middle section, the beginning, all of it. Not just the result, all of it. It's as if you were to go to heaven and say, Man, I fought my sin, battled temptation, I read, I memorized, I prayed, I was here every Sunday, I came to Bible study, I know the hymns, I memorized. You get to heaven and God says, oh, you did all that? Really? Let me give you some texts that you can just soak in. You don't have to put them up here because I'll read because they're pretty quick. Your salvation was before the ages by grace. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 said you got grace before the ages began. Okay, well, but I, okay, how does that work out? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you were saved by grace. Okay, I get it. I get it, I get it, I get it. But I have been renouncing my sin since I was a Christian, okay? Titus chapter 2, verse 12 says grace has been training you to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives. Okay, but I'm the one that has believed. I've done that, okay? Romans 12, verse 3, is the faith that God assigned. Okay, but I have the gifts, okay? Romans 12, verse 6, the gifts that differ according to, can you guess the word? Grace. Okay, but I can handle the Christian life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. Okay, I need strength, Lord. Good. Hebrews 13, verse 9, your heart is strengthened by grace. Do you see the rhythm, friends? Let me caution you and warn you in a loving way. So this should be a blanket, but it should be a caution. If there is no desire to grow in grace and godliness in your life, there is likely no grace and godliness in your hearts. J.C. Ryle said it this way, the man, who is nothing, the man who is nothing more than a kind of Sunday religion, whose Christianity is like his Sunday clothes put on, put on once a week and then laid aside, such a man cannot, of course, be expected to care about growth in grace. Friends, apart from grace, there is no such thing as freedom. As a non-Christian, you are a slave to sin, aren't you? You don't do anything. You, I mean, you're a slave, right? 
You obey your master. But Jesus offers real, lasting freedom by his free grace, right? We find pardon and power to change. That grace sets you free, doesn't it? To believe, right? He sets you free so you will believe. By faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this what? This salvation, this faith, every, the whole order is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So friends, let me encourage you that God can make really bad sinners willing to believe. Do you know that? He's not impeded by them. What's the best example of that? Yourself. Yourself. So therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and trust Christ, right? He offers grace to enable you to do so. Let me ask you a question for the Christians, and then we'll move on to our our final point here. What makes your spiritual walk differ or stronger than others? We've kind of answered that question, haven't we? Who's responsible, who is responsible for your Bible reading, for your strength of faith, for your ability to teach, for your, for your prayer life, for your temptation fighting? Well, obviously, we must do those things, right? We know that. But friends, be encouraged. It is all of the Lord, beginning, middle, and end. Do you feel very small as a Christian? I really hope that you do. Because you have a really big Christ. Brothers, in heaven, none of us will boast even an iota of ourself. Second, that's Paul's second angle. The third angle here, the third area of grace is much more brief. Grace creates humility towards other believers. He has two things to show very simply. Look at verse 11. First thing, God's people, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. Well, who's the they? Well, the apostles, right? The ones that Jesus appeared to before Paul, right? Paul's saying, if his conversion is all of grace, how about the other apostles? Well, in Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father, right? Peter goes, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus goes, that's right, but you didn't figure that out. My father revealed that to you. All the apostles were saved just like how Paul was, right? By grace, free grace. Every true believer who's repented and believed by grace and by grace alone is a believer, right? All of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and Romans chapter 12 says that, says that God gives gifts of grace for the church, right? For Christians. So therefore, any faithfulness in the Christian life and any church, so the apostles were all spread out, any good church growth that they were a part of can rejoice because they were believers, they were brothers, right? How clearly do we need this today? If you're like me, you have in your heart, and you won't say it out loud, I don't, I don't want you to, but you have like me, church tribalism, don't you? Church envy, frustration. How come we can't have that? How come they're doing this? That's not fair. They're doing that. Whether it's denominations, across or same, as if we're like enemies, right? There's this church hostility. You guys know it exists, right? Like I do seen it, been a part of it, okay? It's be, and it, but if we knew, if we knew, guys, that God's grace is the reason why anyone believes that any act of faithfulness in the Christian life is performed by a church is really by God's grace, why is there any envy? They're not doing it, right? It's not them, it's God, right? Spurgeon said, self-love, no doubt, is the, is the usual foundation of human jealousy. I like myself a lot. 
That's why I get jealous, right? We want to be known. We long for our kingdom to be known, our will to be done. Pastors like me, myself, I'm an example of this. I have pastoral jealousy. Shameful. Church, jealousy, frustration. Wish I had that like that. Wish we had this. Wish we had better that. Wish I had this. Wish we could be like that. Self-love. I want my glory to be promoted, not God's. That's why I do that. And Paul doesn't care. Whether it was they or you, I don't care. I don't, I don't care if he's preaching. As long as it's true, right? Wouldn't you be loved to be freed from jealousy like that? Never be jealous over another Christian ever again. I don't care who's preaching. Is it true? Yeah, let him preach. I mean, wouldn't you love to be like that, be free? Oi. Here, here's a test. Do you ever think to pray for other people's gifts around you to grow and to outgrow yours? I hope they'd be a better teacher than I am. I hope they can pray better than I do, be a stronger Christian than I am. Do you ever pray for things like that? How often do you pray to be replaced by someone with better gifting, perhaps? Have you prayed that God would kill your jealousy or that? How often do you find your contentment and your joy for others on your prayer list? Do you pray that God would use them and you would not be seen? Paul says, whether then it was I or they, it doesn't matter. He just praises God for them. Very simply here. Second thing, God's work, God's people, God's work. Verse 11, so you believe. This is related to the first point, but Paul is saying it's humility, it's belief, right? Paul's no respecter of person, just as long as people get converted. That's what he wants. He wants conversion, right? So friends, do you long for conversions to be seen? Do you long for God to save sinners? Would you be faithful in speaking and praying the gospel to other people? Paul's saying, as long as people believe, I don't care how it gets out. Just get out, right? He rejoices in conversion. Why? Paul's like, I didn't really do anything. I just opened my mouth and words came out and God did all the work. That's what he's saying. Every conversion is another chance for Paul and for us to rejoice. It doesn't matter what town, what person, what church. If it's, if it's conversion, praise God, right? Let me ask you a question. I, I heard this in a sermon, so if you think it's painful, take it. I didn't invent it. It's beautiful. It stabs me every time. Uh, do, do you guys ever pray for revival? I'm like, man, I hope there's like a revival. You guys ever pray for that? Like, I hope people get converted. I hope this church grows, right? What if revival came? but it came to the church down the street. What would you do? Stings, doesn't it? Oh, it hurts me a lot, to be honest. That's what Paul's like. I don't care who, I don't, I don't care how. Just believe, right? Humility. It's humble. It also gives me confidence for those who I know who are not Christians that God can overturn your heart just like that. You can rebel all you want. If he's going to get you, he's going to get you. Right? He, oh, he overcame Saul. So God says to repent and believe the gospel, to turn from your sins and trust in Christ, and God is able to save the worst of sinners, right? Let me read you this. Grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles the flame of my soul, rules my inner man, consecrates every thought, word, work, teaches me your immeasurable love. Grace proceeds, accompanies, follows, and sustains my salvation. The ultimate test of spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God, said Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let's pray.